Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Greta Johnson, and this is the Nerd App Book Club. It's just like a regular book club, except sometimes you can kick back, put your feet up, and enjoy the television adaptation instead of reading a very long book if you feel like it. This month's book club pick is Min Jin Lee's Fabulous Pachinko. It's historical fiction. It spans most of the 1900s. And it's about four generations of Koreans living in Japan. That's all I'm going to say for now. But before we dive in, this is your spoiler warning. If you haven't read the book and you don't want to know what happens, this is not the episode for you. Go listen to some of our other stuff. However, if you do want to know what happens and you are game, then we are glad to have you. Um, It's also worth mentioning, as I said, this book was just adapted into a gorgeous series on Apple TV. We're going to talk about that a little bit, of course, too, and maybe try to stay away from some spoilers, but also it's based on the book, so I'm not going to overthink it too hard. I am super excited about this month's panel. With us, we have Elise Hugh, host at large for NPR, who also served as NPR's bureau chief in Seoul and has done a lot of reporting on tech as well. Elise, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be back. I love talking about books and reading books, so... To all those Korean speakers out there. We also have Angie Kim, whose book Miracle Creek is fantastic. Angie, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Annyeonghaseyo. Yay. Okay, so I think we should start off with a voicemail we have from one of our listeners. This is Rachel in Indianapolis. I just keep coming back to the opening line of this book. History has failed us, but no matter. And just Fuck, that's powerful. Um, I just, like, I can't stop thinking about that line, let alone the entire book. I have been wanting to read this book for a long time. Um, You putting it on for this month really got me going, and I'm so glad I read it. And I can't wait to watch the series. I thought that was a great place to start, obviously, with the first sentence. This book has been out for a while. I'm curious, Angie, when did you first read it? So I first read it, I think, in when it first came out. Um, mm-hmm. I knew um, Min, Jen Lee, through some friends um, that I went to law school with. Cool, because she was a lawyer too, right? Yeah, she was. And we didn't go to the same law school, but we're around the same year. I think like I'm one class behind her. And so we had a lot of, and and some of my best friends from in law school went to college with her and you know, did English at Yale with her. And so I was introduced to her and her books before she became sort of, you know, Min Jin Lee. And I was able to go to a talk that she gave 
at Johns Hopkins um, about Pachinko and sort of the phenomenon that it became. And um, and it was a very intimate group. So it was really awesome to sort of hear her talk and then get a signed copy and all of that sort of stuff. So I think it was when it first came out or right after it was uh, named a finalist for National Book Awards. That's so cool. Elise, what about you? When did you first read it? I was living in Korea when it came out. So it was immediately something that I wanted to get my hands on. Um, I moved to Korea in 2015. I believe that Pachinko came out, what, in end of 2016 or or beginning of 2017. Yeah. And I got to say... the first, my first impression upon reporting in Korea, becoming a correspondent that was based in Seoul, was just how much history, the the painful, the brutal period between 1910 and 1945, when Japan colonized, annexed Korea, um, and made it, they burned books, they burned Korean history, they made it illegal to speak the Korean language. Um, how much that kind that painful history was still alive in the people of Korea and the sort of national memory and it it sparked all sorts of diplomatic incidents um even when i was there you know um because japan and korea are still reckoning with that period so what a powerful time to be able to read this book that talks about this or uses that period as a backdrop for what's really a intimate story about one family, you know, Mm -hmm. and in some ways making it intimate makes the book that much more absorbing. Completely. Yeah. And um, I'm, I'm a Korean immigrant. I grew up in Seoul and then, you know, Mm -hmm. came to the U S when I was 11 in middle school. And um, so this was like, you know, this just having another Korean author whose book becomes huge here in the U.S. It was unbelievable. But I remember Min talking um, about the fact that it hadn't like necessarily gotten this warm reception in Korea. And in fact, Mm. her um, Korean edition didn't sell until it um, sold in Japan first. So it was translated into Japanese. And it was almost like when it became popular and sort of hit, you know, the bestseller charts here in the US. And then, you know, there was news about the Japanese translation. And it wasn't until then that the Korean sort of market came after Pachinko. And um and and it was such an interesting thing to think about from that perspective too, like whether it would be embraced by Korea itself, you know, and and also Japan. That's fascinating and seems kind of ironic, too, that it took that trajectory, (laughs) right? Right. Absolutely. Because I would think that this would be the kind of thing that maybe is kind of shunned and maybe a little bit, you know, people in Japan wanting to sort of say, well, you know, this doesn't put us in the most flattering light or Mm -hmm. something. Um, And yet it was embraced there first. So I thought that was really interesting. So both of you mentioned you have ties to Korea. Obviously, Min does as well. She was born there and ended up in the U.S. It's interesting because she talks about how she didn't actually learn about, you know, stories of Koreans living in Japan until she was in college, which made me wonder when 
each of you kind of first came across that idea. Angie, like, did you did you have family members who lived in Japan or anything? No, not at all. I mean, I had heard about sort of, you know, from my parents um, having to learn Japanese and, you know, all of that sort of stuff, that period of uh, when Korea was annexed. But I didn't even realize that there were, um, you know, Koreans in living in Japan. I I, I don't think I even I just sort of thought of Koreans, you know, around the globe as being in, you know, Canada, the U.S., Mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing, maybe Australia, but not in Japan. So reading Pachinko is the first I even heard about it. Wow. Was that the same for you, Elise? Or did you have a different no, sense of it? No, because I covered both Korea and Japan. Oh, sure, so I so <laughs> I'm I was uniquely educated on the Zainichi community. They're, these are called Zainichis. Mm-hmm. Um, there's about 600,000 Koreans who remained in Japan after um, the after World War Two ended, after Japan surrendered in World War Two, that ended the colonization of Korea. And most Koreans returned to their homeland. But 600,000 stayed in Japan. Their descendants are still in Japan. Mm. Um, And many of them in the Zainichi community remain targets of a lot of racism Mm. Um, in Japan, a lot of discrimination. They have to go to different schools. Um, I've done stories about how the Zainichi in Japan remain loyal to the Korean government that was dominant at the time, which is today's modern day North Korean government, because Pyongyang... um, was obviously a cultural, uh, political, and economic capital before the end of World War II. So it's really interesting. And uh, a lot of the Zainichi remain kind of stateless and without papers. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what a what a, what a a fascinating and rich history to mine for fiction. No kidding. Well, and it's interesting you say that because, you know, obviously we see towards the latter part of the book uh, takes place in 1989 or, you know, in the late 80s, which mm-hmm. obviously you're still seeing a fair amount of racism at that point. But you're saying it's it hasn't changed that much over the last. It continues. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I remember doing a story about how, you know, the Zainichi have to go to different schools or or choose to go to different schools. Right. Um, because their community is really tight and there's solidarity there. And, and, and little kids will get shouted at or thrown things at, you know, because they're not Japanese. So there is that national pride, that patriotism and that this in-group, out-group tribalism that you'll see between the Koreans and the Japanese that continues. What I think is so interesting about that is that, um, you know, being a Korean American here Mm -hmm. and having faced racism and, you know, written a lot about that here, um, I had sort of thought about, and I think a lot of people think about it in this way too, um, sort of racism against Asians as being race-based, right? Like we look Mm -hmm. different, Mm -hmm. that type of thing. And what I think this novel does, and you sort of see it visually, you know, in the TV show, too, Mm -hmm. is that it's not just about sort of looking different necessarily, you know, and that it is this sort of tribalism. And so there is an ethnic component that is not race based. Do Do you know what I mean? It's there's it's that division, which I had never really thought about in terms of Asians. 
um, as having that kind of tiered hierarchy, which is funny because I had heard about this from my parents growing up, of course, and yet I didn't think about it. I didn't focus on it because of my experience here where whiteness yeah everybody's aspiring to whiteness right. Yeah. <laughs> right yes so in the absence of a place where everybody's aspiring to whiteness then all of our nuances and differences among a group that mm-hmm. is not monolithic we're constantly saying Asians are not monolithic right. and we aren't right right exactly <laughs> right there are so many divisions between Northeast Asians who look Northeast Asian with like paler skin right. and Southeast Asians right Ali Wong has a famous bit about this and then But then even among Northeast Asians, among the Chinese, the Koreans and the Japanese, there's so much history and a lot of baggage and a lot of old um, historical battles that have not died. Absolutely. And, and, you know, like I remember all of my relatives and I feel like I can do this, too. They claim to be able to be able to tell, you know, just with one quick glance, whether you're Chinese and or Japanese or Korean and. Exactly what kind of a mix you are and all that kind of stuff. And I think um, white Americans have never really understood that. And it's interesting to have a book like this to sort of make people aware that of how false that is, you know? Yeah. I think, too, one thing that I found so striking and that I think also the TV show is capturing really beautifully is that that idea of. You know, when you come from a place that is home, but that the fact that home can mean so different, so many different things to so many different people. Mm, and of course. and, you know, when you when your parents are from a different place than when you, where you're from and how important that is, but also the fact that they had to leave it. Like, I just think, you know, just around the immigrant story, there are so many really intense and really beautiful themes throughout the book, you know, it, and especially as you trace the different generations. I remember talking to Sue Hugh, who is the executive producer or showrunner of yes. the television series. Yes, and that was a she great said, It was beautiful. Thank you. She is so thoughtful and she talks about how, you know, the immigrant experience all over the world is a horror story mm. because you have to leave your homeland, go to a country that isn't yours. You're thrown into a language. It's basically like being shot out of the womb. You know, you're mm. thrown into a language and a culture that you don't understand. And it's happening all over the world. I mean, we're watching more and more migration right now. Four million new refugees out of Ukraine, at least. But then climate change is creating all these refugees. And so... Um, the story it makes it makes stories like these that really humanize the experience for families for individuals even more important. I'm so glad to see art about it. Yeah, it's really wonderful. And the TV show was kind of a revelation too, because you know mm. in the um, in the novel, you know that people are speaking in different languages, but you know it's all written in English. Yes. So it's, kind of that kind of experience and then when you watch it you know on tv and you hear all these different languages 
And then you see the subtitles done in different colors to sort of tell us when something is being said in Korean versus Japanese. And of course, the subtitles don't, you know, go into gradations of that, but there are different dialects of Korean and Japanese also. I mean, so it's just so interesting and fascinating to see all of that and sort of the code switching at work, all of that. It's really very cool. We actually got a clip from the first episode. This is Solomon, who is the, let's see, grandson of our main character, Sunja, who I don't know, I would argue is the main character. I think that's a fair argument to She's make. the protagonist yeah. for sure. Um, so yeah, here he is. He's at his fancy job. In this land, her being Korean, you think that'll give you an end? Wait, wait, I'm confused here. I thought you were Japanese. No, I just grew up there. You sure about this? Yes. I'm sure. And once I close this deal, I want to be transferred back right away. I want that VP title and the raise backdated to today's date. And I want my year-end bonus to reflect just how much Colton Hotels means to this firm. And I would like all this in writing. So partly the music is really intense in that scene because they're they're like alternating between that and then Young Jin, who's meeting with a spiritual woman for help conceiving children in 1910 in Korea. Um, but I don't know. I kind of love thinking of it as just like very dramatic business arguing anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think this is a really interesting place to start the conversation about the adaptation, at least, because that is a shift. That is a divergence from what happens in the book, right? In the book, Solomon's boss is like, hey, you're Korean. You need to go do this. As mm-hmm. opposed to Solomon saying, no, listen, like, I can do this for you. And this is what you're going to give me in return, which in a lot and of ways... And I need it as a leg up. Yes, exactly. Yeah, which I thought was a really interesting shift. And for the most part, I think I liked all of the... I haven't seen... I've only seen three episodes so far. I think for the most part, I really liked the deviations that I'm seeing. Um, but I would love to know what y'all think. Elise, did you watch it all already? I watched it all. Okay. I binged it. Nice. Um, because I... I, I just prep. loved yeah. the book so much. No, well, I I loved the book so much. Mm-hmm. I binged it before I we even got the interview. So um, <laughs> <laughs> that shows you that shows you how devoted I am to the Pachinko story. But I will tell you the big. So there's one huge difference between the book and the series for those of y'all listeners who haven't seen the series, and it's that the book is told chronologically from 1910 or 1912 all the way through 1989, um, which is the most obvious way to unfurl this big epic story. The TV series collapses time, and what it does is is it intercuts between the 19 the early um, early action, so in the 1910s, and the late 80s, so the end of the epic Mm -hmm. and the fourth generation. Mm -hmm. So it cuts between and constantly chooses really dramatic moments, like you described, Greta, to cut between the 1910s and the 1980s. And I asked Sue Hugh about this, and she said that she made this decision because she wanted to convey the scale of this story and also that there were themes that remain the same mm-hmm. even as time mm-hmm. and situation and continents changed. She I will I want to mention this because this was a subject of some critique in Chinese and Japanese and Korean press. So when the series came out, what 
some of the Asian press didn't like was that Suhu made this prestige TV choice hmm. to collapse time and intercut between the generations this way because they thought that they it was used as or critics suggested it was used as a crutch that that Sunja's story just as she was coming up as a little girl was too boring you know for western audiences or couldn't stand on its own that was my thought especially if you haven't read the book and you don't yeah. know where it's going you know i mean i could see the argument yeah. that like you know, corporate merger business drama is potentially more exciting than fish market drama, you know? Yeah. And also, and not only that, but it's also like, you know, there's some white faces and some English, you know, English, right. There's some of that too, so that it doesn't just seem like historical fiction or, you know, historical drama. I think, you know, one advantage of a book is that just by holding the book in your hand, you can see the heft of it. Mm -hmm. And so, and you can sort of see, you know, it's divided into three books and book yes. one is supposed to be, you know, like 1915 to like 1930, whatever it is. And, you know, and um, so you can see that it goes throughout generations and it's this yes. sort of epic and the book cover describes it as such and all that kind of stuff. Whereas in the TV show, I mean, I heard an, another interview with the um, showrunner too, where she talked about how her original vision for this, and I think it still is, is to have four seasons and yes. to sort of basically throughout the four seasons go through like 1950, 15, all the way to 1989, but then keep on going back to this 1989 story mm-hmm. but four mm-hmm. seasons like winter um uh spring summer and fall in the four okay. episodes you know through the four seasons and that by doing it that way we're sort of showing sort of how it, we're showing the entire story in that way so i thought it was really sort of interesting and thoughtful from you know, from a TV series perspective, because you're not going to get the idea of the heft of it just by like watching, you know, eight seasons of episode one, especially if, (laughs) you know, God forbid it's canceled before season four. Right, right. Mm -hmm. I got to say, though, and I'm curious what y'all think about this. But when I read the book, the least interesting characters to me were the 1980s characters like Solomon. I I was so disappointed. My first critique of the book was that I was so disappointed that after everything that Sunja had been through (laughs) and Noah, her son, that Solomon's biggest problems were like, am I going to get promoted or are we going to be successful in this land grab? And I just thought it illustrated so much the huge immigrant gap, Mm. like the immigrant experience gap between what, for instance, I'm the daughter of um, Chinese immigrants. My father actually is a defector and, and refugee. And so... Like the huge difference between what he went through just for survival, (laughs) right? Like Mm -hmm. having to escape Mao's Mao's regime after his colleges were Mm. shut down and sent to re-education camps and having to learn how to farm and all this stuff. And then having to swim through a bay of shark infested um, waters to to, to freedom. And then I'm sort of like sitting here in my closet podcasting. Complaining about a book. (laughs) Right. Like, am I self-actualized? It's so crazy. And it made me... And so maybe my my criticism of the Solomon part was that it was too real. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's, I mean, 
it does. I, it does speak to that complacency, though, that, you know, through generations, it's like they don't he's fine now. Right. Like and that is the goal. And I do think one thing I thought the third section did really beautifully that you're seeing in the TV show, too, is the idea that material success still only gets you so far when you live in a racist culture. Right. And I think, yes. like, I did think that's a really beautiful part illustrated in that section. And, and right. I think that is really important to see that, like, even if you have the tie and you can throw the nice party, like people are still going to talk shit about you, you know? Right. And what did you guys think about the theme song in the beginning? Oh, I love the theme song. What do you think? Uh, so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love the theme song and I love that these characters are like getting around, you know, dancing and, you know, and they're so happy and they have these big smiles because let's face it, we don't really see them smile that much, right? So it's really nice on that hand. But on the other hand, You know, it's just funny to me because it's the song is Let's Live for Today. And it's Mm. about like living for the moment. And in a way, I feel like it's completely opposite. It's the last thing any of them are ever able to do. The story is. I mean, (laughs) Suja has like sacrificed everything. Yeah. She's not like, oh, let's do stuff on whims because it's fun. Yes. And she is just like everybody has like sacrificed so much. And book two is just like, you know, gut wrenching. God, I yeah. don't see that in uh, really any of it in in this season, but still, and I feel like it maybe undercuts that message, mm-hmm. or maybe maybe by juxtaposing it, it's supposed to highlight it, and maybe mm-hmm. it does do that to some extent. But I can't help like think back to some of those criticisms that I saw that Elise you were talking about about you know sort of dumbing it down for the or yes, or playing exactly. it playing it soft for exactly. the western audience exactly yeah. exactly so let's you know what it let's show them it's not all doom and gloom let's give them a little bit of hope that like <laughs> fun to come we're not all like you know into korean melodrama tears and blah blah you know and a little bit of gossip this actually brings up a little bit of gossip in that i wonder how minjin lee had she stayed on as an executive producer mm. would have had an effect on the ultimate series because when the book was sold um and to apple to be made mm-hmm. into a series i think minjin lee was originally attached right. as an executive producer so i'm totally using my la language here she was at, attached as an ep and was going to have more say but as the series was getting developed she dropped out Right. And it's very quiet as to why she dropped out. I don't know. Angie, you got any intel? You know her. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I mean, I just think that it's really interesting as a novelist, because um, I'm going through this right now myself with my with my book, with mm. adaptation and, um, you know, talking to the showrunner and things like that. And it's really interesting to sort of think about sort of your work and you know Minjin Lee says that she started working on this book um 30 years ago so for 30 years of your life to be yeah, working yeah. on and she had something like four different drafts of this novel that she had sort of abandoned or whatever and to sort of have all of that and it's a little scary to think about it being sort of adopted by somebody else oh god totally. and then 
you know, and then like completely. It's like somebody else raising your kid. Exactly. Yeah. That's what happens when you option your book, I guess. Yeah. You kind of give away yeah, you, that creative yeah. control. And in some ways, it's really exciting because I think that as novelists, as fiction writers, a lot of us talk about the fact that we're kind of obsessed with the multiverse. <laughs> and, yeah. and I think yeah. the reason is because when you're writing, you think about sort of the road not taken, right? Like you sort of think, okay, well, you know, this could happen or that could happen. You know, structurally, Minjin Lee could have, she she talked about how the first iteration of this book actually started in the 1970s. And so that's why I think we're kind of obsessed with the multiverse and parallel worlds because you sort of are wondering like, oh, if I had chosen that other, you know, road for my character, I wonder what's going on in that multiverse version, you know? Right. And so I think we're really fascinated by that. So I wonder for men, you know, what it must feel like to sort of see this and think this is a road that I considered probably and chose not to go down. And, you know, and, and, and to see that actually play out must be so interesting. Agree. Agree. Okay. More on Pachinko in just a minute. One thing I was curious to ask you two about that also speaks to the TV show, but also has to do with the book, obviously, is so I on my second reading to prepare for this book club, um, I was really struck by how predatory Hansu was. Agree. Agree. And they totally softened that and then collapsed the age difference. It was just like, yes. Ugh. Yeah. Because he was originally he's like in the twice book, her age. She's 16. Yeah. Yeah. She's 16 and he's 34. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Or, yeah. Which is like, you know, which is rape. Right, 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 right. Here, you know? Yes, it felt right. very I don't rapey. think those laws were on the books in colonial. <laughs> no, 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 I know, but, I know. But yeah. But, um... But that that age difference was huge. He seemed so much more predatory in the book than as portrayed by yes. Hottie Lee Min Ho. Oh my Ho. god, those suspenders are so sexy. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Suddenly on the TV show, she's like early twenties, and he's probably also thirty four. But but ageless, really. It's Lee Min mm. Ho, and oh, um, no. and just such a dreamboat, so and it's dream. so much more loving. I think. yes, it's more loving. I don't and know. It's, it it kind of uh, which makes sense, but I feel like they really lean into those themes of like him being able to expand her world in a way yeah. that she finds really enticing because she you know lives in this tiny fishing town and doesn't really know what's out there, but is really curious and would like to yeah, learn. She can't read. Yeah. yeah. Though it's true in the book that she was so taken by him and what he could tell her about different Yeah, but I don't know. It always felt in, like a, in a menacing way to me. You know, no, not at all. In like, you know, let me sweep you off your feet. Right, you know, right. um, it was like that kind of 
that kind of way to 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 the point where in the TV show, even though I, I read this book and everything, <laughs> when, you know, he's like he, when he's like, well, you can come and you can, you know, you, you'll want for nothing and all that. I'm like, yeah, yeah, go with him. You Wait, should like, really go with him. Oh, but- <laughs> Yeah, as long as he keeps wearing those she would suspenders. be shamed and her child would be bastardized forever, you know, and all right, these right. Well, yeah, I know. Those minor, but I was seriously, like, in my mind, I was thinking of, like, all the different things. I was like, well, maybe <laughs> she could go to a different village yeah. and where nobody knows, and then they could pretend to be married. Maybe her mom doesn't even have to know that the marriage isn't real. Oh, like, seriously. Wow, well, you I really mean, thought it through. <laughs> the links that Angie will go to, the, the <laughs> mental acrobatics she's willing to go through, so that Sunja can be with Lee Minho. <laughs> he's well, such a heartthrob. I, mean, like he, but, also, I yeah. know, but you know what? Can I also say that in the book, you know, her husband, Isak, is not supposed to be a hottie either. Like, yeah. he's supposed to be kind of frail and whatever. <laughs> I have to say, I, I was much more into the husband. Also, he rescued her and was, yeah. was willing. Yeah. How yeah. many men at that time, or even in this time, are okay. willing to marry a woman who's carrying a child that isn't their own? Like, there's still all of that kind of vestigial masculinity tied into those yeah those kind of ideas right but i felt like in the book it was much more like he thought that he was gonna die any minute because he was so sickly all the time but he didn't look that way because he looked so strong and handsome in the tv (laughs) show it really undercut that whole thing for me i was like well yeah she's gonna be with him forever what's the sacrifice she's putting up with here yeah there is not yeah (laughs) So we actually got a voicemail um, that I think is really nice. It is from Liz in Minnesota. Let's listen to it. I'm just going to share my favorite line because I think this sums up so much of the book. Um, It's uh, talking about the pachinko machines, um, but also it's just talking about life, right? Like, anyways, here's the line. There could only be a few winners and a lot of losers. And yet we played on because we had the hope that we might be the lucky ones. How could you get angry at the ones who wanted to be in the game? No, oh, that just sums it up. It was so funny because so at my second read of this, I actually listened to it. And I remembered as I heard that thinking like, oh, I should flag this because it's a really lovely quote and I want to bring it up in book club. And then I promptly forgot and was so glad when Liz sent that in because it was like, Liz, you read my mind. I just yes. thought it was such a beautiful yes. line and such a great. I don't. I mean, it's just gorgeous. It sums up everything so beautifully, you know. It really does. And also it sort of explains why maybe she chose Pachinko Mm -hmm. as the title Mm -hmm. for the book, too, because it sort of does encapsulate, you know, everything that goes on. Life is a gamble. Life is a risk. Mm, I love it. Okay, so we have one more voicemail to listen to. Here is Carrie. Hi, Nerdette. Um, This is Carrie. I'm an AP English teacher at a high school. And uh, this year I didn't really assign reading for my students. I let them choose. And a few of my students happened to pick Pachinko. And I was reading it at the same time they were. And one of my greatest joys this school year was discussing it with my students. And that shared experience with my students was really heartwarming and joyful and and connected, which this year we really needed. So, um, I just wanted to share that with you. Thank you so much for all that you do and your love of books and inspiring us all to do the same on babbling. Okay, take care now. Bye. 
<laughs> oh, Carrie, oh, I love that. Oh, I got to tell you, and, and I love your students. That's really impressive because I got to tell you, when I was in AP English in high school, I never chose the long book. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, uh, my teachers would have been glad had I read the assigned texts <laughs> at all. Yeah, I am that person, but I got to say, I still love to read. I still love books. I just wasn't as dedicated an AP English student. So that is awesome. So I'm so funny. glad that um, Pachinko was a connective read for Carrie and her students. Yep. Isn't that gorgeous? I don't know. The, it's the thing is, like, if a long book, like, when it's that good, you want it to be that long because it just means oh, you yeah. have more and more. Oh, yeah. and I got to say, the reread, I never, it was not, I was not, it never crossed my mind that it was a really you know, it was like, what, how many pages is I it? I mean, almost 500, uh, I think. Yeah. Like, almost 500 yeah. It never crossed my mind because yeah. I was just so Completely absorbed enthralled. and back into it. Yeah. And yeah, in that world. I mean, I think it's such a page turner. And I do really feel like there is something about this, you know, the linear storytelling that Minjin Lee does in the yeah. book that sort of like you fall into it and then you just sort of you you don't even remember you don't even realize yeah. that you're going through all of these generations and that there are tonal changes between you know Pusan in the beginning mm -hmm. you know all the way to um you know Tokyo at the end and all that kind of stuff you don't even see it because it you're just immersed you know yes mm -hmm. So uh, before we go, I would love to know, we do a completely arbitrary rating of the book. It was kind of hard for me to decide a thing this time around just because, I mean, in a lot of ways, you know, I mean, it's there are very sad elements to this story. But I think we should do jars of kimchi. Jars of kimchi. All right. Great. So Yummy. Okay. from one to ten jars of kimchi, how many jars would you give the book? Angie, what do you think? Oh, the book. Yep, just the I book. Can. Let's just do the book. Ten. ten? Oh, ten jars of kimchi. And I think it's the jars of kimchi thing is so appropriate <laughs> given episode eight and where the season one oh, perfect. ends. By the I'm way. glad to hear that. Oh, completely. Yes, yeah. I, I agree. I loved this book. I give it all the jars of kimchi that are possible. <laughs> perfect. Um, I loved it when I first read it. I loved it again. Yeah. Thank you to all the listeners who read this with mm. us. Yes, totally. So before we go, I would love to know if y'all have recommendations for a book to read. If someone, especially if someone picked up Pachinko and maybe hasn't read a lot, either about, uh, you know, Korea or the immigrant experience or, you know, if just like an epic sweeping, like anything that felt like it had resonant vibes to you. That's another book that you might recommend. I would love to hear about it. What do you think, Elise? Oh, I have to go first because I was going to offer <laughs> a... <laughs> Hopefully, Angie has something that hits these requirements, because my recommendation to y'all is another period piece that makes you think about memory mm. in a way that mm. this was important um, in Pachinko. But then the period is the 1980s only. <laughs> and it's by it's by another Korean American author. Her name is Susan Choi. The book is called Trust oh, cool. Exercise. Yeah. I love Trust Exercise. I read it around the same time. I read Pachinko, and um, I wanted to just recommend it while I have this platform, too, because it was a really challenging read in a lot of ways, but brilliant. And it was one that stuck with me, and I think about a lot in the same way that I think about Pachinko, even though it is not a sweeping family epic. That's okay. That's totally fair. Or it takes place at a performing arts high school. Yes. I love that book. That was probably my favorite book of 2019 oh, so cool. so glad that you recommended that 
Um, so I, can, I don't know that I can stick to just one. Uh, I have three here, but I'm going to and I have all three in front of me. I was going to say gonna, you're literally looking at them, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm literally looking at them right now. OK, I'm going to I'm going to choose If You Leave Me mm. by Crystal Hana Kim. And I think it's appropriate that I choose this now because Min Jin Lee um, just selected this book and Crystal Hana Kim for the um, National Book Foundation's Five Under 35 oh, wow. um, honors, um, just like, and that was announced like last week, I think. And, um, and it's her debut novel. And it's also, it actually also uh, takes place a lot in Busan. Oh, cool. And it takes place in the 1950s in Korea, in the sort of aftermath of the Korean War. Mm-hmm. And it's also like an intergenerational, you know, things that happen in one generation in 1951 and sort of how that sort of, um, uh, you know, goes down through all of the generations and resonates and all of that and an epic love story also. And, um, and also a central character um, who is um, kind of similar to Sunja. Um, her name, the protagonist here is Hami Lee. And, um, and so, yeah, I think it has a very similar feel and Min Jin Lee picked it. So I think it's wonderful and appropriate. I can't wait to read that. That's a great recommendation. Um, the one I was thinking about is very different in a lot of ways, but there are some really similar threads. It's called True Biz. It's by Sarah Novick. It actually just came out. And hmm. um, I'm obsessed with it. I haven't finished it. I'm like, I can't wait to keep reading it because it's just that great. And it's not about the immigrant experience. But its main characters are part of a marginalized group navigating like a extremely non-inclusive dominant culture. And that's that mm-hmm. it takes place at a school for the deaf. Mm-hmm. And so it ends up there are all these really fascinating themes and issues around language and communication and who gets to decide who gets to communicate and have language and what's best for someone else. But it's also a high school. So there's like sex and drugs and secrets and drama and it's just a really fascinating combination of introducing me to a culture I don't know that much about and also still just like being a really fun, plotty book. So I'm kind of obsessed with it and I think everybody should read it. It's called True Biz. Thank you. This is awesome. I love this segment. Yeah, I love that. Yay. Okay. So for people who want to keep in touch with both of you who are in different stages of books coming out, uh, Elise, what do people do? Yeah, you can find, I hang out most on Twitter and Instagram at Elise Who, E-L-I-S-E-W-H-O. But since y'all are all readers, I do have a pub date for my first ever book. It's nonfiction and it's about my time in Korea. It tracks the global rise of Korean beauty alongside um, Korea's feminists and the feminist movement oh, that there. That so, so cool. Oh, I love that. So I am going to be sharing more about the book and how to pre-order on my newsletter called Hughes Letter. <laughs> and that's elisehugh.substack.com. E-L-I-S-E-H-U dot substack.com. Please subscribe and be part of my book community. Amazing. We can't wait for that. Now, Angie, I know you're a little earlier on in your writing process for book two, which I am thrilled to hear about. Uh, for people who want to know what's next for you, where where can they follow you? So you can also sign up for my newsletter at angiekimbooks.com. That's my website. Perfect. And my second Perfect. book will be coming out. 
I think 2023 or 2024. Cool. Well, we can't wait. Elise, Angie, thank you both so much. This was so much fun. I feel like we could have just done this for hours and hours and hours. Oh, so fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. That's it for this month's book club. Thanks for reading and maybe even watching along with us this time around. Of course, extra nerdy bonus thanks to Liz and Rachel and Carrie for your voicemails. It was great to hear from y'all as always. Our May book club selection is This Thing Between Us. It's by Gus Moreno. I can't wait to hear what you think of it. Of course, it is never too soon to send over a voicemail. All you need to do is record yourself on your little smarty phone and then email the file to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. Did you know we have a newsletter? It's pretty sweet. It comes out every Friday morning. You'll get a link to the latest Nerdette episode. You'll get news about book club. You'll get links to other book recommendations and recipes and just all kinds of fun stuff. You can sign up for that at wbez.org slash nerdetteaf. Thanks to Maggie Civet who builds that every week. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman. Our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. We will see you on Friday. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.